0: Phil, you've had both your shots and your booster,
1: correct? I have. Have you had both of your shots and your booster, Scott? Yes, indeed. Well, we're like fully protected. Not quite, Phil. We've only done two
0: podcasts so far during the nearly two-year-long pandemic with Dr. Patrick Remington, everyone's favorite UW-Madison expert on the prevention of disease. I think with our listeners, we need a booster dose of Dr. Remington's sage advice so we can better understand the Omicron variant and how to protect ourselves and our families. Not
1: only is he a UW professor who, who teaches the next generation of public health experts, he's also an outdoor mall enthusiast.
0: <laughs> That's right. Maybe we can get him to weigh in on State Street as we discuss the latest news and research about the virus on today's Center Stage with Milford and Hands, the Wisconsin State Journal's political podcast from the sensible center of Wisconsin politics. I'm Scott Milford. I'm the editorial page editor for the State Journal. I'm Phil Hands, I'm the editorial cartoonist for
1: the Wisconsin State
0: Journal. And we are one-third of the Wisconsin State Journal editorial board. Yeah,
1: but we are not the most boosted one-third. I think we're all equally boosted on the board.
0: Back to center stage with Milford and Hands, Dr. Patrick Remington. We had you first on our podcast, at, gosh, it's been almost two years ago when COVID first hit. Then we had you back on for sort of a second shot of Sage advice. And now I'm thinking of this third one as kind of the booster dose of Dr. Remington. And I'm wondering is this going to be it? Or are we going to be talking to you again in six or eight months because the pandemic will still be going?
2: Well, I think this is the new normal. I hope that we're not talking about the pandemic, but we may be talking about what is termed endemic, which is basically the new normal that we've added another very serious respiratory virus to the respiratory viruses that have been circulating for millennia, influenza, respiratory syncytial viruses, and and the common cold. But hopefully, we can continue to make progress. So, the definition of the problem is not a crisis. It's not a pandemic, but it's how do we deal with respiratory viruses? Now SARS-CoV-2 added to the existing viruses that we've been dealing with for a long, long time. If I said
0: the start of the pandemic was one and the end of the pandemic is 10, where do you think we are right now?
2: I think, unfortunately, we don't know. Because the minute we say that with certainty that we can predict the future, this virus teaches us a lesson. It teaches us that the complexity of the biology of respiratory viruses, of the sociology of uh, our response, of the vast global network of uh, different communities and uh, different conditions. So just as we think we've Figure it out, which we are. We're learning while we're going. But the one major lesson that we've learned is it's very hard to predict the future. We're certain that the SARS-CoV-2 virus will not go away. Everything I've read among the world's leading scientists say that we will not eliminate this. I I teach an undergraduate Uh course in. Public health and the principles of disease eradication, like uh, we did with smallpox, and potentially could do with polio, do not apply. Vaccination does not completely protect individuals, and the extent of asymptomatic illness uh, make this a virus that will not be eradicated. So that is known. Uh, but what's not known is the future of uh, evolution of the virus. And future variants, will they be more contagious? Uh, if they emerge as a variant, they, by definition, will somehow outcompete the existing viruses. It's fascinating that I just heard this morning that virtually all viruses being typed today are Omicron. So it has gone from an unknown variant in, uh, originating in South Africa to take over the world, to be virtually 100 percent of infections today in the state of Wisconsin, and that is a phenomenally example of how these viruses evolve and how they, through natural selection, how they outcompete viruses that are not as efficient in being transmitted from person to person. So the Delta virus is almost gone as a cause of infection, and the Omicron
1: was only discovered in November, right? So it's we're talking about two
2: months, basically, to take over the entire world? We're talking about basically two months. It certainly may have originated in the individual, uh, the theory being that one individual <clears throat> may have had multiple replications of this virus being immune compromised. And so from that one point source, I mean, when you have a mutation, and again, viruses, and in fact, all cells, mutate, um, they make mistakes. And these mistakes are most of the time not beneficial. The cell or the virus doesn't replicate, but on occasion, and when you have billions of opportunities to draw that lottery number on occasion, that mistake creates a protein that is somehow more contagious. We really don't understand that biology yet, but the Mm -hmm. Omicron by this mutation created a protein structure that makes it more contagious, changes the biology. It's less harmful to the lungs, but seems to be more upper respiratory. That may be why it's more contagious. It may have to do with how it hangs in a small particle of water uh, by making it able to be airborne, not just small particles that, you know, six feet away, you're safe, but this virus could potentially be more efficiently transmitted through airborne transmission. And so, so yes, that was a mistake, uh, but it turned out to be, through sort of natural selection, a competitive mistake. That virus, the Omicron variant, uh, turned out to be much more efficient at uh, uh, infecting people. The good news is everything I've seen uh, is that it is less severe, but but mm-hmm. let me just go back to basic math if you take a virus that's let's say half as severe half as likely to send somebody to the hospital or to kill them but you double or triple the number of people who can be inf- infected you actually have a bigger public health problem and right now mm-hmm. we are maxed out in our healthcare system we are at full capacity within intensive care units and we're seeing the same total public health burden because half is serious but more than two times as contagious means there's more disease and then the the other problem the perfect storm is that lots of healthcare workers are sick lots of teachers are sick and even if they're not sick if they get infected we know that they have to stay away from work so by we now compared to a year ago we have as much or more disease but our workforce and public health and healthcare and, in fact, just in general, is, uh, is compromised. People are burned out. People are sick. People are staying home. And so it's a, it's a bigger crisis today, even with a less serious, less severe, I should say, uh, variant of Omicron.
1: Omicron sort of surged and crested and seems to have broke in South Africa where it started from. And it didn't seem like there was a a large spike in deaths from that same as there had been in the past. Is that something we can extrapolate here in the United States? And is that good news? Or should we still be really concerned?
2: I think we still should be really concerned. We should uh, realize that um, that experience is informative. uh, But South Africa is a much younger population. And so Uh, simply extrapolating from a younger population uh, would not be appropriate to the state of Wisconsin, for example, where we have a large number, a high proportion of elderly. We have people in in, uh, long-term care facilities. We also have a high proportion of people with chronic medical conditions, uh, uh, obesity, diabetes, uh, cancer, heart disease. And so these are different risk factors, where in Africa, you're right, the Omicron variant led to a spike in cases, people having mild illnesses, but did not lead to a spike in deaths. Uh, but we're, we're seeing, just look at the numbers, we are at capacity with uh, people being seriously ill, hospitalized, and dying. Mm-hmm. So we hope that the experience that has been seen around the world will apply here. But the other difference is that was summer, uh, that summer in uh, South Africa, we're in winter, and I don't know about you, but I'm inside. I'm not sitting outside. So uh, we know that respiratory viruses circulate more in the winter. The theory is that it's due to being indoors more. So that those big differences make me worried. I think we're going to see a much bigger, much worse public health impact from Omicron than than South Africa did.
1: Is that why Delta hit the South so hard this summer when everyone's stuck inside because it's too hot to be outside? Or is that just because people were unvaccinated in the South?
2: I think it's both. I've always thought crudely, that uh, when it's uh, in warmer times and warmer seasons that people spend time outdoors. But then I think back to when I lived in Atlanta, and, and I worked for the CDC, uh, I did not spend much time outdoors uh, during the summer months. In fact, we were air conditioned at work, we were, drove in an air conditioned car and came home to an air conditioned home. And so that in effect is indoor those are indoor environments. So you, you make a really good point. But the other thing is it's so complicated to think about all of the what we call covariates, the things that vary uh, from place to place. So having a low rate of vaccination could lead to more disease in a population. The other thing is that when the SARS-CoV-2 virus appeared, nobody in the world had seen this virus. We had no natural immunity. But with other respiratory viruses, including influenza, every year those viruses circulate. People have been exposed maybe as a child, and now they're 60 years old. And so we have some experience with other viruses. That's why it's called novel the novel coronavirus, the new, never-before-seen. And so it's been exposed to populations that have no history, no immunity. Uh, and therefore, I get back to my main take-home message, which is, that's the critical importance of vaccination, is that we can get ahead of the virus that has is novel, never-before-seen. Mm-hmm. The only way we're going to get ahead of it is through vaccination. And it's just so wonderful that basic research and and our uh, pharmaceutical companies that have been able to produce the vaccine that's safe and effective. Again, not perfectly effective mm. and not as effective today as it was uh, against the earlier variants, but it's the best tool we have to get ahead of the virus and to make it harder for it to replicate. Doctor, if we're
0: at about 80% vaccinated in Dane County, And we're at about, I looked this morning, 55% boosted in Dane County. And then if you add in the people who have caught COVID-19, one of the variants, presumably a majority of them are people who weren't vaccinated. So you've got a higher percentage than 80% have been vaccinated or have natural immunity. Why aren't we over this?
2: Well, a couple of reasons. First, we still have people who are unvaccinated, Um, there are people who continue to get ill, uh, and they are susceptible, and this is a highly contagious virus. It would be great to have a cure that this was a black and white issue, or a vaccine that is 100% effective and prov- produces lifelong immunity. Thinking back to other vaccines like the smallpox vaccine, a very effective vaccine, you got shot in the, in the arm, some of us are old enough to have that scar, and that produced lifelong immunity. M- maybe, again, after decades, you might need uh, to be boosted, but that's not the case with this immunity. So respiratory viruses, again, you have to think about our immune system. It's a very complicated system. It's not just uh, antibodies circulating in your blood. It's things that get secreted, uh, antibodies and defense mechanisms that come out in respiratory secretions. It's Mm -hmm. the killer cells in your uh, lungs. And uh, we have what we call B cells and T cells. So it's a it's a really, it's like an army, but there are many fronts to this army, many places that the body sets up defenses to keep invaders from causing harm. And so the virus attacks different fronts, but it sometimes gets through the front. So it might get through our secretions and get into our lungs, and then it might get through the lungs and get into the bloodstream. And so those are different Opportunities for our system to fight the virus, but they're not perfect. And what we found is that immune system gets charged up right after you're sick, or right after you've had a vaccine or a booster. You're quite immune, but that immunity we, we don't we don't preserve that forever. Most immune response cells um, over time uh, start to wane and aren't as effective. It makes sense. I mean, it, it you put all your Immune system to fight that bug and to keep it from killing you. Sometimes, in fact, the immune system does such a good job that it makes you sicker because it's attacking the virus right in your lungs. And that robust immune response makes you quite sick. Mm. So, I mean, you have no choice because you have to get rid of the virus. uh, But the robust immune response actually can be bad for your health. But once that's done, the body says, "Well, I've you know I fought that battle. Uh, I, I'm going to now take on the next I- invader, and it you know might be another virus. It might be a the common cold. It might be adenovirus or other viruses, and the immune response to that SARS-CoV-2 will wane. And that again, that's kind of virus specific. So we've learned that. Well, actually, many scientists predicted that the immune response from vaccine and from natural infection would not be long-lasting. Just the question of, is it months or years? Um, And and again, to, to your question, why do we keep seeing disease transmission? It's because over time, our immunity wanes. And the second thing is because worldwide, we are not battling this virus as a global pandemic, as a threat to the world. Places that have Low resources are not able to vaccinate their populations. That's where the virus is replicating. Let me just say that every time the virus replicates, it can make a mistake. It mutates sometimes within a week. And so every time it makes a mistake, that's an opportunity for a variant to emerge. And so it's a global problem. We could take care of Dane County, but if we don't take care of Wisconsin or the U.S. or the globe, eventually those viruses are going to mutate. I fear that they could not only be more contagious, but more deadly. I think we're fortunate that the Omicron variant is less severe. Uh, It could equally have been as severe as other variants like SARS and MERS. Other coronaviruses are very serious. 20, 30, 40% of people infected die from those. And So we're very fortunate. I think that SARS CoV-2 is is on the order of 1% overall. Obviously, it differs from along the age spectrum and depending if you have chronic illness, but but we're fortunate that it's not more severe than it is.
1: Is there a chance that this Omicron could be a a, a blessing in disguise and that it's so contagious that it gives that a lot of
2: us get it and then we sort of build immunity to it? Yeah, I, I think it, it could be a blessing in disguise for some people and for some populations, if you're lucky enough to have been vaccinated, boosted, and then you get a mild case of Omicron because you have a breakthrough infection, you are on the lucky side, right? Because you're taking advantage of the vaccine, of the booster, and then that probably led to a mild illness, even though it was a breakthrough. So your immune system is about as charged as it could be. But for every person who's lucky, there could be an elderly person for whom their protection was not good enough. And the Omicron broke through and caused severe illness, uh, hospitalization, uh, ICU, and and a death. So it depends. And you're a bit bit spinning the wheel. I I think that people who are younger and who are otherwise healthy, this Omicron could be a way to, in a way, boost vaccine-related immunity and uh, give a bit of natural immunity. But if I step back and say, what about the entire population? It's not a blessing. If younger people
1: are getting it and the virus is burning through them, does that sort of like create a firewall? Is it, you, does the virus run out of people to infect at some point?
2: Uh, early on in the pandemic, uh, Sweden and other a few other nations thought that the, there were two approaches. One of the approaches was to let it run wild in people who would have mild illness and protect the vulnerable. So put up walls, uh, for example, among the elderly in nursing homes and people with chronic conditions. It turned out that that experiment failed uh, because you can't put those walls up, that grandma uh, occasionally visits uh, her uh, granddaughter uh, and uh, and young people do interact. They work in nursing homes. They work uh, in uh, communities where they mix with uh, people with chronic conditions. There was a raging debate as to whether that was a good model. There were some very credible scientists that said, "Look, we're we're in trouble. I mean, we got we got a Sophie's choice here. I mean, basically." there's no good alternative because we didn't have a vaccine so let it burn through healthy population get to herd immunity by by infecting healthy people who will do well that didn't work because you cannot put up a wall between those who will generally fare well and those who will fare poorly that the experience was those that, that did not reach herd immunity the other point is that immunity to the early variants have not had not been as effective uh, to the more recent variants, so so I would never recommend a policy where young people sort of step in and and uh, sort of like uh, chickenpox parties where mm-hmm. you 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 go in and you say well you know Johnny has chickenpox everybody come over for a birthday party because we all want to get chickenpox that is not a good strategy today because some people fare really poorly after that chickenpox party it's better to get a vaccine and to be immune. Same thing with uh, COVID. We we thought at the university that there may be somebody coming to campus saying, I just want to get infected and get it over with. Uh, There was a small proportion of students who said they not only weren't being careful, but they were happy to get it over with. Um, That is not a good strategy. Again, it might be reasonable strategy for that individual, but it's not a good strategy for the community. And more people are harmed from that than, than are, are protected.
0: For those of us receptive to vaccination shots, the drug companies are telling us, no matter what the, happens with the variant, we think we can rejigger our vaccines to fight that new variant pretty well. It just takes some time to ramp that whole process up of getting the vaccines into the arms. What about the people though, who aren't receptive to the vaccines, What does the science tell us about natural immunity? Are they protected to some degree or does that wane quicker? Do they have to catch every variant? What do you know about natural immunity since, unfortunately, that's kind of becoming a political issue?
2: It shouldn't be political because this is basically a scientific issue. Um, This is a public health issue. Deciding to take the course of natural immunity to achieve protection uh, comes with a very high risk a high risk for individuals and a high risk for the community. So there's no question if we did not have a vaccine, uh, I mean, think about HIV and AIDS. We, we don't have a vaccine for HIV AIDS. Um, nobody, nobody would propose that as a population, we simply expose everybody to HIV so that they become infected, but then uh, immune um, because people get sick and eventually die from HIV And so I think the same can be said about a strategy to sort of roll the dice and and take a risk. Yes, you will develop natural immunity. Nobody's debating that. That's how biology works. That's how our system responds to infection. But along that path, you've just spun the dial for ending up in in an emergency room uh, with trouble breathing and being on a ventilator and dying. And more importantly, you spun the dial for yourself. And one would argue that as a society, Americans tend to like freedom, freedom to do whatever. I would argue that you're free to drink, you're free to smoke, but not in my room, not where I work, and you can't go driving after you've had too much to drink. We set the boundaries for that freedom of choice to harm yourself. Again, I'm not telling anybody they can't drink themselves drunk. They can't smoke. But, but we, as a society, we set boundaries. We say the minute that smoke begins to harm a child or harm me or that you get on the road completely inebriated, we set boundaries. We say that, that, that's the limit of your freedom of choice. And I would say the same thing. You are free to choose not to get vaccinated. But the limit is that if you get sick and you come visit grandma or you go to, your child goes to school, um, having made that free choice and infects others, maybe some who can't be vaccinated, people with young kids with cancer, people with immune problems, you've just harmed somebody else. That's not simple free choice. That's freedom of choice that affects the health of others. And that's what we do as a society. We decide what individual behaviors are fine to, you know, you have the freedom to choose for yourself or your family, but when do those choices harm others? And I think that's the nuance with COVID, that we as a society so value our individual liberty, but don't recognize sometimes that that free choice harms others. And every time I see somebody, I went to the Badger basketball game last night, I think an uh, accepted risk. I wear a mask. I'm fully vaccinated and boosted. I have not fortunately had COVID by, I think, good chance and, and, and safe practices. But it makes me upset to see people sitting around me who've just decided that they have the freedom to not wear a mask. Despite the fact that the people are walking up the aisle with a sign that says masks are required, they just ignore that. as if this is their free choice, but not realizing that they're potentially putting virus in the air and harming those around them. To me, everybody ought to think about when your free choice is just affecting you, sitting home, smoking a cigarette, having too many drinks, that's affecting your health. And we as a society uh, uh, cherish that right. But But when you go to a basketball game and choose not to wear a mask and might be asymptomatic or might actually be sick, you've just made a choice to harm others. And to me, that's where free choice should be limited.
1: As an opinion journalist, I will say that I think anybody who decides not to get vaccinated is made a poor decision. And and that is a that is a lousy decision. And it's not based on fact and science. But we do know that people make that decision. And some people do end up with natural immunity. As a public health policy moving forward, we see that restaurants are requiring people to get vaccinated now or show a negative test
2: should natural immunity be treated the same way as a vaccination? If you go to some um, social gatherings, there is a requirement to have a proof of vaccination. And so you're asking if I came in with with evidence of antibody level, not just expect uh, that I had an infection, but I have antibody, I, I have been infected and I'm protected. Theoretically, one would say that's the standard that we want. We want evidence of immunity, whether you obtain that through a vaccine or from getting infected. And again, made Uh, I think, an unwise choice for yourself and for others having gone that route. Um, But you got to think about practicality uh, and feasibility. This would be very hard to have a system where you can say, well, everybody keeps track of their illness. If they have symptoms, they go in to see a doctor, you get a PCR, which variant was it? How early during the, uh, during the uh, pandemic were you infected? Uh, I think for all practical purposes, if you ask about a policy, is it's better to take a vaccine that is safe and effective uh, and then have immunity than it is to spin the wheel for you and others uh, and, and, and then say, well, now I've uh, I, I got lucky so I can I can come to the wedding uh, because I, I have proof of infection. So I, again, I would answer it theoretically if the standard is that you only want people at the wedding who are less likely to bring the virus in, natural infection gives you some protection. There are people who were, have breakthrough infections, who have had two doses of vaccine, have been boosted, and then the Omicron variant breaks through. Oftentimes, it's if, in that case, would be a very mild illness, but it boosts your immune system. Those are the individuals who have the most immunity today, again, to this to this current variant, but we know over time that that immunity will wane. I think on our first
0: podcast, so that was almost two years ago, and we weren't sure what was going to happen with the virus and where we were headed. Phil and I were startled, as I recall, by one of your answers when you said, well, eventually everybody's going to get this. And Phil and I thought, what? We we don't want to get it. And uh, we thought the whole point here was to avoid it. And you explained that we don't want the hospitals to get overloaded and we want to put off getting it until there's better treatments, until there's vaccines. And so I'm wondering, the three of us are sitting here. It sounds like all of us have had both shots. All of us have had a booster. None of us have gotten it. But is that still the case that all three of us at some point we're going to get it? And we just hope that by then
2: it's uh, there's better treatment and it's a weaker strain? So, Scott, you have a great memory because I have forgotten what I said uh, almost <laughs> two years ago. Well, we had the tape. Uh, Yeah, I recommend the listeners go back and listen to what I was saying two years ago. At that time, the philosophy was, we're not going to prevent infection, we're just going to delay it. And it was called flattening the curve. So if the curve is peaked, uh, there are people in, you know, outside the hospital knocking on the door to get in and dying at the, uh, and that was happening in New York City and in Northern Italy and and around the world. And so the idea was flatten the curve, everybody's going to get this just flattened the curve. One year later, with the miracle, I think, of a safe and effective vaccine, we changed the Trump Uh vaccine. Uh, dur- during, a, uh, during the previous administration, yes, the science went on. Despite the politics, the science went on. And again, that was not a discovery that happened in six months. It was a discovery based on 20 years of research started right here at the University of Wisconsin by some novel work by Dr. John Wolfe, who uh, in 1990 published a paper on, on viruses and how RNA viruses can um, <clears throat> be used uh, in, uh, in medicine and so that was a change, really, from flattening the curve, everybody's going to get it, to not everybody's going to get it. But I think we, the honeymoon that we had uh, last summer was that people were getting vaccinated, rates were dropping, it was summer, um, Delta variant hadn't emerged, and we thought, well, we just dodged a bullet. And uh, I thought it was over. A lot of people thought it was over. Well, not not the true, not the people who do this for a living. Uh, Their worst case scenario was somewhere in the world. There's a variant cooking and the Delta variant came and it was bad, more severe very contagious It outcompeted the uh, the previous variant and and then the Omicron. And so I think the new world order, there's actually a series of papers in in JAMA published yesterday uh, about we need to embrace this new world order. We need three things. One, better public health systems. Uh, Our public health leaders, Dr. Ryan Westergaard and John Myman and colleagues are working day and night. You can see how it's wearing on them and everybody at state level, federal, and local level. And, and, and the public doesn't, not only doesn't appreciate it, but they're angry at people for the messages that they're having to give. Second thing is we need a better healthcare system. Our healthcare system is so disorganized. And, you know, how do we get therapeutics? How do we uh, prioritize uh, uh, our response? How do we work with communities so that there's good communication between government and public health? And third, we just need to be better citizens. We need to respect the role of government. Sometimes we need a rule that makes everybody do the right thing, like a mandate. We prefer not. Uh, I'm the last person who wants to be mandated and told to do something, but when it's in the best interest of the public, we need to do that. And frankly, we all need to do something thinking about other people, not just ourselves. And this cry of freedom—I'm not going to take a vaccine uh, because I, uh, uh, you know, I want freedom and liberty—means you're not thinking about other people. And 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 to me, that choice of freedom is fine if if you're the only one going to suffer from your what I think is a bad decision, but with Respiratory viruses, you're not the only one you're thinking about. You're thinking about your family. You're thinking about your neighbors. Uh, because you get sick, uh, you can potentially infect others, and you're going to take resources. I mean, people get religion when they put when the, when the doctor comes in and says, we're going to put you on a ventilator. Many people get religion at that point and say, uh, I should have been vaccinated. It is too late. And, but you've also just taken a tremendous uh, resource. Uh, that could be used for people with other chronic illnesses, other problems, people who have made, I think, the right choices. And we're now putting a, using a ventilator for somebody who I think made a wrong and selfish choice.
0: So is it possible for those of us who have done what we were supposed to, we listen to people like you, we got the vaccines, we got the booster. When public health tells us to wear a mask, we do when Fauci recommends we get a test before we go see grandpa and grandma for Christmas, we do that. Is it possible then some of us are not going to get COVID that we will
2: dodge this pandemic entirely? Well, again, the experts say that this will become endemic. I I think eventually the hope is that this uh, uh, coronavirus through mutations and and emerging variants uh, my hope is that we have a system of monitoring those variants very quickly and perhaps having vaccines that are more effective. But I think eventually, let me just go back to my first answer I don't know. So I don't, <laughs> think, I don't think anybody knows. But 100 years ago, the worst
0: pandemic prior to this one, it eventually petered out. Is there any reason to
2: think this one won't and it'll just keep spinning off? variants? Absolutely. So influenza is a different virus. Immunity to influenza can last a long time to that certain. There are a couple of antigens on influenza, the H and N antigens. And, you know, like a like a roulette game, those spin and, and the, the new uh, viruses come up. That's why we have to change our flu vaccine every year to respond to the we predict it. it's circulating in Asia. We say, well, by the time that gets over here, it's going to be H1N5. And <clears throat> let's put that Cocktail together. Um, So that is a very complicated, long standing global surveillance system to protect the population from a very serious virus. About 50,000 people die each year from influenza, about 15,000 die from respiratory syncytial virus. So in Wisconsin, that's between that's more than 1,000 people dying. Since COVID began, we've had over 10,000 deaths in Wisconsin. So what we'd like to do is get back to the normal level of death. I mean, I again, these are bad viruses. Influenza is a bad virus. Respiratory syncytial virus. Old people, people with chronic illness, babies die from these viruses. But that's kind of what we've grown used to. Maybe a thousand or more people die in Wisconsin every year, uh, not seven, eight thousand. That is unacceptable. But can we get back to a thousand deaths from influenza? Maybe 150 deaths from rep- respiratory syncytial virus. Maybe the new normal is going to be 500 people die a year from uh, SARS-CoV-2. We 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 cannot accept 5,000. To me, that is. That is a new normal, that it's unacceptable. We need to continue to do better vaccinations, better better acceptance of vaccines and better vaccines themselves. But also it could be the new normal is when there's an outbreak uh, that people are gonna be asked to use masks. It could be that employers now need to offer people sick leave. How many times did you hear somebody come to work coughing, sniffling, and saying, mm-hmm. "Yeah, I'm not feeling very well, but the kids are at school and need to come to work. I don't have sick leave. Well, yeah. we need a we need a system that helps people make those right decisions. So if we have a system that you know makes people, particularly people in the service industry, come to work when they're not feeling well, guess what? The new normal is going to be, 5,000 people dying every year from from this coronavirus as it continues to mutate and and evolve.
1: If this becomes endemic, there's no such thing as herd immunity because it's mutating so fast. Now maybe it's you get a mild case of it. Like we, you know, the common cold. No we don't have her, herd immunity to that. The 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 rosy perspective is that COVID turns into part of the common cold, right?
2: Yeah, I would say the rosy perspective is that it becomes endemic and that the variants themselves are less severe, or we have therapeutics antiviral agents that with mild or moderate illness are are quite effective. And there's evidence that we do. Those are just coming out, but we don't have enough of them. And also we have a public that is more responsive to the other things we need to do and uh, better testing. So the new normal is uh, without a doubt that this virus will become endemic. The hope is that Uh, We have but better public health system, better healthcare system, and then just a more generous public that we're all in this together. But it could be uh, that this virus mutates, and the next variant is more severe. Uh, Again, I don't want to scare people, uh, but just Google SARS and MERS. Those are coronaviruses that kill two, three, four people out of ten. It is Mm -hmm. they are extremely. Um, serious viruses. And the globe responded swiftly and with standard public health approaches of isolation and quarantine. No vaccines, by the way. But those viruses were easy to detect. They became contagious after symptoms developed. And so they were amenable to this uh, approach of isolating sick people, quarantining people who've been exposed. These novel coronavirus Makes people contagious before they have symptoms, and it is highly contagious. And those two aspects make those to get back to your question, Phil. Make make the idea of eighty percent. You know, if we get, only get to eighty percent, we'll have herd immunity. That's not the case. We'll have better immunity. We'll have fewer outbreaks. But I don't think the experts think that we'll get to the point of being able to contain the virus and surround it by you know vaccine efforts and then eliminate it. There is no way we're going to eliminate. The SARS CoV, the novel coronavirus.
0: What's your practical advice at this point in the pandemic for grandpa and grandma who want to see their grandkids, or Phil and I who have kids who want to see their grandparents? At Christmas, we managed to find enough immediate tests that we were able to test, you know, 15, 20 people before we all got together at Christmas. But what about just grandpa having lunch with his granddaughter? What's the protocol there? What's your recommendation?
2: At the risk of there being people who know me that listen to this podcast, they know that we have six grandchildren. uh, And I I have decided that that's an acceptable risk for us to visit our kids and our grandkids. But we do so cautiously. First, we want to make sure that we don't bring illness uh, to that family. And so we are very careful in Assessing our exposure risk and wearing masks uh, when in in public places and being fully vaccinated. I think that's the key. The complexity in visiting grandkids is that with young grandkids they're not vaccinated and some are in public settings like uh, preschool or daycare, uh, and so that's a calculated risk. and And I wish I had a good answer to that, Scott. I I think, to me, that's where you need to balance the benefits and risks of uh, you know, having your grandson or granddaughter, you know, bouncing on your knee. And do you wear a mask or or not? Do you do that in limited times? Or do you go and move in for a week? Uh, I think each individual needs to do everything they can uh, to reduce the risk, but be aware of what risk means. And, uh, And I would say that, you know, a young child in a daycare setting, uh, you don't know what those other families are doing. You don't know if they're healthcare workers or that, that their parents are vaccinated or not. And so when you have that uncertainty, you are taking risk. And, and I, I think that, that that's, that's hard. I mean, that, that is a hard question. Uh, each of us, uh, I think, understands that we are taking a risk. I mean, again, going to the basketball game, uh, I, I know that I took a risk uh, because I'm out in public with, you know, some people sitting not far from me deciding that they, you know, didn't care about me and chose not to wear a mask. Uh, so, you know, my hope is that my mask is as effective as it can be and that my uh, vaccine and, and booster protects me from illness. And, and, and I know it protects me from serious illness. So I'd say do everything you can, everything that's practical, but at some point we need to get on with this. And, uh, and we need to accept that uh, just as there are more than a thousand people who died every year in Wisconsin from influenza, there might be more than a thousand people dying from Coronavirus.
0: Well, those are the Marquette fans, by the way, who don't wear the masks. It was <laughs> Iowa. It was <laughs> Iowa, actually. So we had, uh, we had a letter writer say that, and then another letter writer wrote in and said, "No, it wasn't us Marquette fans. It was you Badger fans."
2: <laughs> yeah, it's everybody. I'm a pretty good judge of what's good for me. I, I do risky things. I, I ride a mountain bike. Uh, I, I, I ski, but I don't drive drunk, and I don't, you know, smoke cigarettes in indoor places. And I, and I don't go unvaccinated. Uh, because I know that decision, although it's for me, uh, it also affects the health of others. And so part, part of my motivation to, to get vaccinated is to protect myself, but part of it is to be part of the solution and, and not the problem and protect others, be part of the community.
0: I know you're not a linguist, but you're saying Omicron is it definitively Omicron and not Omicron? I've heard it a couple
2: different ways. Are, are you a do you do you know your Greek? When I was accepted to medical school, I got a book on Greek and Latin medical terms, and I began to study them. And this is a long time ago, uh, but back then we all said Omicron. And when I heard of the uh, variant coming out, somebody on television said Omicron, and I said. Who knew that I've been pronouncing it wrong all these years, but I'm sticking with Omicron. <laughs> so you are a linguist.
1: One thing the pandemic has done is that Scott can finally pronounce the word vaccine. So. <laughs> I was
0: having trouble with that. I was saying it vaccine. So I'm finally past that. It took me about two years to say Dave Chislevich's name correctly, too. I don't try. Uh,
2: uh, there, are certain, <laughs> there are certain things that Maybe I've done. Decided That's that it, It's better not to get in the ring. Uh, And uh, Mayor Dave, I'm happy to just call him Mayor Dave.
1: Patrick, I have one theory and it comes across whenever I'm at like the curling club or something like that. And we have all these protocols of wiping down surfaces. And and then we all get together for a beer around a table later. My theory is I think most COVID comes from people drinking at bars together because you're you're unmasked and you're close to somebody. And I, I think that's is that, is that how it spreads? I mean, it feels like all the other things we do, like, you know, the wiping down surfaces and, and perpetually staying six feet away from people. I think, I think most of it comes from people getting close to each other and having a beer together. This is, by
0: the way, in the scientific community. This is called the hands hypothesis. I'm sure you I'm sure you've heard of it.
2: Yeah, he he wants to exonerate all hands uh from uh being the culprit in transmission. As you know, I think in our early conversation almost 2 years ago, we talked about um you know, uh sterilizing groceries and and the Fear that there you would have the virus on your fingertips. This is a respiratory virus. it It comes out of uh, out of your mouth and nose, and it floats in the air. Um, Yes, it can get to surfaces. It doesn't survive very well. So I think the sense is, from my reading of the of the outbreaks and the literature, is that um, fomite. It's called fomite. Basically, it gets on a surface, and you pick it up, and then you put your hand in your mouth. It's not a principal way. It's not a very important way of transmitting it. So I, I think it's still reasonable for no other reason than there are other bad viruses that cause <laughs> diarrhea and vomiting that are on surfaces. So please don't don't imply that I'm not saying you should wash your hands. So don't lick surfaces. Don't lick surfaces and don't put your hand in your mouth uh, because that's a good way to then shake somebody else's hand. And that's a fomite, right? I mean, I sneeze into my hand, I shake your hand, and now you've most certainly yeah. have on your hand.
0: In a way, this is the golden age for germaphobes.
2: Yes, this is a time when but they're probably still indoors wiping down <laughs> surfaces.
0: I know we need to let you go, and you've been so generous with your time, doctor. I had one sort of more philosophical question. Recently on Facebook, you posted yourself as safe from harm because I believe you were in Colorado and there was this crazy fast fire with the wind that was blowing. And it wiped out a whole swath of communities. And I'm just thinking when you're out there and you've been thinking about this virus and it's killing all these people, and then kind of right up from behind your back on presumably a vacation, a fire comes and almost wipes you out. Do you kind of get the sort of Forrest Gump moment of you don't know what you're going to get?
2: Well, absolutely, Uh, Scott, you make a good point that this coronavirus has taken the world by storm. Pretty much my colleagues in governmental public health, that's what they're working on. But we got to remember that global climate change is real, that these uh, uh, only two individuals died in the fire, in the Marshall Fire uh, near Boulder. We were visiting friends who have a place, fortunately, upwind from the fire. But if that wind had shifted 180 degrees, We would have had to evacuate. Uh, So that was more than a thousand homes. Worst fire in Colorado history, and we were safe because we were happened to be upwind. But the important thing to remember is other public health issues not only have not gone away, but we have fewer resources now to dedicate to helping people with mental health challenges, people with chronic illness, you know, uh, broad issues of environmental and global uh, global health. So. We got to get through this. We got to learn from our mistakes and learn from science and develop systems that are better at taking care of a global endemic. And when we do that, we can then get back to taking care of all these other problems. And again, these problems have not gone away. If anything, they've become more acute because we've had less time to dedicate energy Toward them. And so all the other public health problems we've been dealing with, from opioid uh, addiction to uh, uh, mental health and uh, depression and suicide, those problems have not gone away. In fact, I think they're. Uh, more acute because we have less resources to address them.
0: When you were in Boulder, did you go to the Pearl Street
2: Mall area? I know your editorial stand on State Street, if that's what you're trying to get me to talk about. I just thought maybe you had an enjoyable time there. We did not this trip, but I did go to Pearl Street a couple of years ago, and I reflected that it's too bad that our community... Does not go to a true pedestrian mall and understand what it's like. That is, it is like night and day. Uh, and I'm a you know born and raised in Madison, educated here through medical school. Uh, State Street's an important part of my life, and uh, I agree with your readers uh, <laughs> that, that we need to get that to be what it should be, what it what Pearl Street and other pedestrian malls are, and. So I, I, you have my vote.
1: All that outdoor t- uh, entertaining space would be uh, bad for virus transmission, too, right?
2: I mean, you could almost use COVID response dollars to change state to an outdoor <laughs> uh, environment. <clears throat> when in Boulder, by the way, we went to a restaurant and I was surprised to see these pods. These they came out each door and people uh, were dining safely uh, outdoors, lots of ventilation, Not connected to the regular ventilation system, and I do think, uh, Phil. To get back to your question, I do think a lot of transmission happens indoors, poorly ventilated spaces, people being close together, and you know, bars are the are only one example of those places. Uh, But uh, anecdotally, a few of my friends who've been infected uh, trace it back to its time spent in a bar, close to people no masks because you're drinking uh, and uh, and there tends to be music so you might be talking loudly or shouting. Uh, it's a perfect environment for the spread of COVID. So I think if we can make State Street a pedestrian mall and move everybody outdoors year round, that would be great. Here here.